so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. You're listening to the ERLC Podcast. Well, Lindsay, our top story of the week is the result of a federal judge ruling that you have something all over your face now. (laughs) (laughs) What is it? Is it this? (laughs) It's the microphone. Did you just like tap your head on it? Yeah, I did. I went like this. (laughs) It's on my face. It's all over your, yeah. Hello, and welcome back to this week's episode of the ERLC Podcast, where each week we'll be talking about our work at the ERLC and focusing on what Christians should know about the things going on in the world. I'm Lindsay Nicolay, and with me this week, as always, is Brent Leatherwood. Howdy, folks. That's it? Short, sweet, and to the point. As you always are. Always Said with no sarcasm. Concision is my... Spiritual gift. I don't know that I've ever used the word concision. I'm not sure. Is that a word? I have no idea, but I'm going to look it up. (laughs) Before we start making up other new words, let's talk about what has been happening lately. And we'll start with what the ERLC has been featuring this week. First up, we have a piece by our friend, Daryl Crouch, who is local here in Nashville. We'll write outside of Nashville. And he has written about the opioid crisis. His piece is titled, How Churches and Communities Can Collaborate to Overcome the Opioid Crisis. You may not feel like this crisis touches you, but it is affecting so many people in so many neighborhoods close to you. And uh, the opioid crisis is a family crisis. It's displacing children from their parents. It's creating unstable, unhealthy environments. Our neighbors are not flourishing. And so it's something, if we are able to, uh, that we should care about and that we should um, get involved in if the Lord calls us to, and that we should definitely be praying about. I appreciated this one particular point from his piece. He calls us to view substance abuse and addiction as a great commission issue. And I'm sure even if we don't know someone that has been affected by the opioid crisis, that we know someone who has been affected by substance abuse and addiction. I... For me, my family has been affected by it, and so we we should view this as a Great Commission issue, not just a health issue, a mental health issue, but as an issue where we want to call people to find forgiveness and hope and healing and rest in Jesus, in the one who um, satisfies our deepest needs and frees us from our strongholds. That's right. And folks will remember, this was a, a topic of conversation for a long time in 2017, 2018, 2019. And then when COVID happened, it, it I mean, understandably, it, it took our focus off of it. And, and uh, Daryl points that out in his piece. The COVID pandemic, however, did not curb opioid use and abuse. It merely moved it out of plain view, but only temporarily. Substance abuse and overdoses continue at alarming rates 
along with other mental health challenges affecting neighbors of all ages. And so he's absolutely right. This is something for the the church to be uh, engaged with uh, combating because it is affecting so many members of our congregations. And oftentimes, uh, the folks that are affected by it, they're kind of out of view uh, in a sense. Uh, they're wrestling with it uh, personally or at home uh, in their family. Uh, but those folks need our help. And again, it is a gospel issue. We need to be walking alongside of these neighbors of ours. You know, we can't do it by ourselves either, and we're thankful for churches and community partners who are doing this work. People like Daryl, and um, he works in a in Wilson County here in Tennessee, and he knows community leaders who are collaborating in this issue to overcome the opioid crisis. And so, there are places that we can go to to be able to be equipped to help our neighbors. And it's not a magic fix; it's more of a marathon. But we do know the God who can transform people's lives and give them the satisfaction that they are longing for. And that is our job as believers, to proclaim that truth as we love our neighbors well. This next piece is by Candace Waters, and it focuses on pro-life issues. And she is debunking a claim made in the Washington Post. It's titled, Is There a Bold Religious Movement for Access to Abortion? An Unholy Claim in a Pro-Life People. So she says, the Washington Post recently trumpeted, and then in quotes, this is the title of the article, an increasingly bold religious movement for abortion access, implying that the faithful are finally getting on board with the cultural moment. And so the writer talks about Reverend Kaylee McAvoy, a United Church of Christ clergy member who worried that her new congregation, situated in a politically liberal suburb of Washington, D.C., wasn't ready to learn that she had recently had an abortion. And then it just goes on to talk about how championing abortion among Christians is something holy, which is just abhorrent. It's not. And Candace goes on to talk about how that is not the case, how we cannot baptize our autonomy. We cannot baptize our desires that are not in line with God's word as holy when God does not say they are so. Instead, we are called um, as believers to deny ourselves, to take up our crosses, and to follow Christ. And then Candace goes on to show how there is less support than you think among Christians, among evangelicals for abortion. In fact, there is more support for the pro-life movement that we've seen since Roe v. Wade was codified, abortion was codified um, in our nation. And uh, she explains about how the pro-life movement grew and how Southern Baptists, even though we were pro-choice, shamefully so, have swung the pendulum, praise the Lord, and are pro-life among some of the greatest pro-life champions. So as we go into a summer where we're expecting this Mississippi abortion case decision to come down, where uh, Roe could be overturned and abortion would no longer be the law of the land, uh, you can read this piece by Candace Waters so that you can speak well and intelligently about the pro-life movement among evangelicals. Well, and you know, I want to say that you could forgive the the original Washington Post writer for saying, uh, using the term a, a bold religious movement for access to abortion, uh, because th- that's exactly what it is. It is, now I say that it is not a religion based on Christianity, uh, but it is, it does have that sort of zeal uh, because it is it is idolizing abortion as as something to be worshipped, 
and this is where Christians we have to we have to be very purposeful in our our witness to the outside world about the dignity of that preborn child and why that child deserves to be brought to term and to live. But there are a whole lot of folks out there who want to advance these arguments, some maybe more legitimate than others, about abortion as it relates to you know, economic conditions or cultural concerns. And, and that's where it is vitally important for us as Christians to just come back to the very basic truth that, that all of those arguments you, you can't get across. Uh, you, you can't overcome the hurdle of that is a life. That is a life that deserves uh, protection and our advocacy. And that's that's where those arguments, they always come up short. And there are other policies out there that maybe can address some of those other items that, that people are trying to bring up. Uh, but you always have to come back to the dignity and the worth and the value of this preborn child. And despite uh, the fact that there, there are some individuals out there that will use a lot of our kind of Christian language, if you will, to advance this argument, we, we've got to be able to, to see through that and say, okay, but this is not the way of the Lord. The Lord does not want us to take the lives of these preborn children. And I like the fact that Candace Waters does go uh, into the kind of statistical evidence to show that evangelicals are more pro-life than, than folks realize. And I am hopeful that uh, later this summer, as we get this the Supreme Court decision back in the Dobbs Mississippi abortion case, that maybe we will get to a place where either the right to life is affirmed, which may, that might be unlikely, or more likely that the decision about abortion is pushed back down to the states. And so each of the 50 states can pursue abortion uh, regulation based on their their own values in each of those states. And that's where we as Christians need to be ready because there's going to be some states that are much more pro-life than others. And those states that maybe are not that, we've got to be ready to start working with individuals and policymakers at the state level to just once again pick up the mantle of being a pro-life people who are out there consistently advocating for the lives of these, these preborn children. And in the meantime, we have so many clear thinkers like Candace helping us to be equipped to advocate for these, these precious lives. And so we eagerly wait for the ruling this summer, and we pray that it would serve to advance life protections. And then finally, in the same pro-life vein, we have a piece by one of our coworkers, Allison Howell. And she actually just changed her last name because she got married, so... I'm glad that I remembered to do her new last name. This piece is a poignant one about her sister, and it's titled, How My Sister with Down Syndrome Changed Everything. Choosing life is not easy, but it's better. And just as the title says, she talks about growing up with her sister and how her parents made the choice for life and how though it has been hard and though there have been challenges, her family would not change the joy uh, that her sister has brought to them and the lessons that that she has taught them and the picture of God's grace that she has given them. And so we're thankful that Allison has shared her story, and especially for this subtitle, that she doesn't gloss over the hard parts. It's not easy always to obey the Lord, uh, but it is better, and it does bring blessings that we would not have apart from walking in his ways and taking him at his word. 
This was my favorite piece that we ran this week, and uh, I'm, I'm so thankful that Allison shared the story with us so we can share it with our, our audience. And, and I like the fact that she doesn't diminish. I mean, this kind of goes along with a little bit of what we were just talking about with, with Candace's piece. Uh, doesn't diminish that, that choosing life is, it is an easy, easy decision in terms of, yes, we want to save the child, but we shouldn't minimize the challenges that come with choosing life. And uh, I just like the fact that uh, she didn't diminish that and that she understood her parents were making the right decision. It was going to uh, change their family life and family dynamics. And uh, But Allison says through all that, there's a great story that her family has to tell. And I, I just, this was a wonderful piece. So I, I appreciate you going to her and saying, hey, share your share your story so that folks could hear about her and her wonderful yeah, sister. Yeah, well, you know what? We never thank Twitter, but we can appreciate her tweeting this. So, And I saw her Twitter thread and wanted her to share more about it. So we'll definitely be asking her to write more in the future. And we're thankful. Yeah, we're thankful, like you said, for her sharing her story. Uh, as I always remind you as listeners, we have plenty of other things on our site. If you didn't get to read stuff from last week, that is still up. There are easy ways to navigate through recent articles. So I would encourage you to go check these out. But Brent, for now, that's your look at what's been happening on ERLC.com. Moving into our culture section this week, Brent, why don't you give us the rundown? All right, Lindsay. So our first story comes to us courtesy of a federal judge ruling that the mask mandate on public transportation is no more. So this comes to us from the New York Times. And I just, I'm going to read from this extensively because I I like uh, how it led off. It began in midair shortly after a federal judge struck down mask requirements on planes. Pilots got on intercoms to share the news and some passengers tore off their masks with whoops and glee. (laughs) That's the lead. With the whoops? <laughs> yeah. Whoops. <laughs> whoops. 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 Ugly. Well, we're not all Aggies. All right. Jonathan Russell Beal, a pilot for Delta, was halfway from Tampa to Minneapolis on Monday night when the announcement came. Quote, the day I've been waiting for, he called it. But on another flight, bound from Los Angeles, Brooke Tansley, who is flying with two children too young to be vaccinated, says she felt scared as the passengers around her slipped off their masks. All I could do was hope it's going to be okay, she said. By Tuesday, more than a year after the country imposed strict masking requirements on airplanes and public transportation to combat the spread of the coronavirus, a judge's determination that the federal government had overstepped its boundaries rippled across the country. As much as ever, the country's pandemic rules are a confounding patchwork. Mask requirements were toppled for many subways, buses, and rideshare services, but the rules remained in place in several major cities. The Biden administration announced on Tuesday that it intended to appeal the ruling. So, Lindsay, what say you about this big cultural development? Well, somebody who I like to follow, Scott Gottlieb, which, what was his position? Brent? He used to be uh, with the CDC. There you go. So he seemed pretty balanced throughout all this, and he was sharing an article where I saw mentioned that airplanes are one of the safest places because of the exchange rate of the air. So once the plane is moving, et cetera. So, I mean, listen, I don't like masks. I don't want to have to wear one. I don't think it's the worst thing in the world to wear one. So 
some of the grandstanding just drives me crazy from some of our friends, people that I love and call friends. And so I'm sure I drive them crazy too. I mean, it's good news. I think the pandemic is still going to creep in different variants. And so I've seen some people say, you just wait, airline is gonna airline travel is gonna be terrible because there are gonna be staff shortages. So we'll see. Yeah. I guess for now we'll enjoy our maskless lives. Yeah. Well, I mean, it says in the story that the the unexpected ruling uh, by this judge instantly reshaped travel for millions while sharpening political divisions over the virus and sowing new confusion over where exactly Americans now need to mask up. And it's really that it's that political division thing, right? So we immediately heard folks saying, oh, you know, th- this is terrible. We still need to, to mask up. The good news is you can still wear a mask. And it, this does not prevent you as an individual deciding I am going to wear a mask. And then at the same time, for those who have been, I would say, outrageously uh, opposed to masks, they don't need to now condemn those who may still want to wear a mask. I, I mean, that that's the thing. We have got to... <laughs> We need to relearn in this country how to live alongside each other and and live alongside those that maybe we don't always agree with on every issue. And so I'm hopeful that is going to be the case here. The Biden administration says that they are going to appeal the ruling. My understanding is, without actually having read uh, line by line this judge's ruling, but from some some legal experts I know, the sense is, is that functionally— the Biden administration needs to appeal it merely to ensure that the CDC's ability to monitor and manage public health in the future actually needs to be protected. Uh, so some of these folks are saying they should appeal it merely on procedural grounds to get it struck down, but then not actually implement a federal mass mandate moving forward. Uh, we'll see if that's actually how it plays out. But I'm thankful in one sense that uh, now every time maybe that I'm thinking about, you know, getting on a plane, I don't have to rush around the house and, and find my mask anymore. And I'm I'm hopeful that maybe, maybe just maybe, though, uh, this will lessen some of the tension that is out there uh, related to masks and, and COVID and, and whatnot. Who knows if it will do that? Uh, because we do still have Twitter. Uh, yeah, not a chance. I'm sorry, but uh, but I, I maybe just maybe just by a few degrees, it will just turn down the notch on this particular subject. Okay, our next story comes to us from NPR, and I called it the case of the professor and pronouns. Uh, from the story, a public university professor in Ohio who was disciplined four years ago for refusing to use a transgender student's pronouns is being awarded $400,000 following a lawsuit against the university. Nick Merriweather, a philosophy professor at Shawnee State University in Portsmouth, Ohio, sued the college in 2018 after he was disciplined for not using she, her pronouns to refer to a transgender woman. And this is according to a news release from Alliance Defending Freedom, a legal organization focusing on religious freedom and free speech cases, and a a good ally of ours in any number of legal issues across the country. In a January 2018 philosophy class, Meriwether responded to the student by using the phrase, yes, sir. And once the class ended, the student asked Meriwether to use she, her pronouns when addressing her, but Meriwether refused to do so. In 2018, Meriwether filed a lawsuit against Shawnee State University, which the school tried to get thrown out. So essentially, uh, the student requested that these particular pronouns be used, and the university 
agreed with the student, and Meriwether said, no, I, I can't do that. Last year, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Sixth Circuit ruled in favor of Meriwether, according to ADF. The court ruled that university officials violated the professor's free speech rights when they disciplined him. So in the news release updating the story this week, ADF announced it had reached a settlement with Shawnee State as the university agreed to pay $400,000 in damages and Meriwether's legal fees. So, A, I think it's interesting that we've got a circuit court opinion here that did say that the court forcing Meriwether to go against what he says are his religious beliefs in addressing this student, that the, the court did found that that violated his free speech rights. So that's interesting. And it's it's also interesting here that the, the university, uh, instead of appealing that decision further, decided to just go ahead and settle uh, with the professor. So those are those are two interesting uh, tidbits for this story, I think. So this seems like a Im- good place to bring up the importance of our advocacy against the Equality Act, which seeks to add SOGI language, so sexual orientation and gender identity language, into the federal code so that our religious liberty would be violated. So the the court would not rule in favor of Meriwether. Meriwether would, regardless of his religious beliefs, would lose. And so our work there will continue uh, because it is an egregious religious liberty violation. And it's not something that we want to see codified. And it's not something that we would want to see anyone of any any faith, any religion be subjected to. Mm-hmm. And, and just speaking of like just a pronoun usage, we've had this question come up a couple of times. I was actually talking with a close friend at one point about this as an older gentleman, and he has an adult child who is a teacher in a particular uh, district who is pretty, um, well, let's just say pretty, pretty liberal as it comes to the usage of pronouns and mandating that teachers do it. What this teacher does, and, you know, this teacher is, a, you know, like you and me, Lindsay, a biblically orthodox Christian, this teacher just sidesteps it by calling every student by their last name, which I think is an interesting workaround. And when it was explained to me, essentially, the teacher was saying, I- I'm just taking the approach like a coach would on a sports team, just calling everybody by their last name, and we don't get into any kind of pronoun stuff in in my classroom. And I thought, eh, you know what, that's a— that's a pretty whimsical way of just kind of getting around uh, some of these. But uh, at the end of the day, cases like this uh, and the opinion that the court rendered do show uh, that there are elements here of free speech rights, conscience rights, religious uh, rights here that they just can't be denied as much as as some of these uh, locales want to try and impress these sorts of kind of soji terms on individuals. Yeah, and it's important to note that faithful believers, Bible-believing, Orthodox believers will come down in different places when it comes to how they handle, like you were saying, this teacher, how they handle pronoun usage. And so I feel like we've got to be willing to have good faith conversations with one another as we figure this out because it's new territory that we've not, the Bible doesn't give us clear instruction. The Bible gives us clear instruction on God creating us male and female that cannot be Mm -hmm. changed, Mm -hmm. but not on how to navigate these types of things. And so uh, we just, we need to have patience and grace toward one another um, as we help one another navigate these things with wisdom. 
All right, our next story comes to us uh, from later in the week as President Biden promised more aid to Ukraine. So this story is being reported by CNN, and it says President Joe Biden said Thursday the U.S. will send an additional $800 million in military assistance to Ukraine as Russia's war enters what he called a critical window. Biden announced the new shipments of aid, which include heavy artillery and ammunition, in a speech from the White House meant to update Americans on the state of the conflict, which is nearing its second month and entering what U.S. officials have said could be a bloody new phase. President Biden said Russia has refocused its campaign to seize new territory in eastern Ukraine, making the flow of Western military aid essential. He went on to say, we're in a critical window now of time where they're going to set the stage for the next phase of this war. The United States and our allies and partners are moving as fast as possible to continue to provide Ukraine the weapons they need, the equipment they need, that their forces need to defend their nation. And there's a lot of news happening and, you know, rightfully we're paying attention to those things. We can't lose sight of what continues to go on, this atrocity that continues to go on in Ukraine uh, while we're sitting here, you know, debating the relative merits of wearing masks or not, Christians in Ukraine were trying to figure out whether they could openly celebrate Easter uh, without fear of getting bombed by, you know, Russian drones. So that helps to kind of keep perspective, I think, on on some of the things that we think are just incredibly important. These people are over there uh, literally fighting for their lives. And so I'm, I, you know, this. I'm glad that President Biden is working uh, to create a, a new shipment of aid to get over there. We just need to continually call attention to this and let people know that what Russian President Vladimir Putin is is perpetrating here is illegal. It is immoral. It is unjust. So, so Brent, you read lots of things online, news items, etc. Have you been reading anything that gives some kind of estimate as to how long they think that this war will drag on? Um, I don't know that there's anybody out there predicting with any sort of confidence how long it will last. Uh, it is clear, though, that Russia is aiming to partition the eastern part of Ukraine away from the rest of the country at this point. So they have removed many of their forces from northern Ukraine around Kiev and have repositioned them now to focus in almost exclusively on the eastern and southeastern part. So what many experts believe they are attempting to do is establish a land bridge uh, between the very western part of, of Russia that comes up against Ukraine and try and get a, establish a land path to Crimea, which they had already taken over back in 2014. So most everyone thinks that is their next objective. Now, does that mean it ends there? No, I I don't think so. I, I think at this point, what President Putin laid out uh, and, and what we, we said at the beginning of this, which is he has in mind reestablishing greater Russia, uh, that would suggest that the remainder of Ukraine is is not going to be safe anytime soon, nor are countries like Romania or Poland. So this is just the next phase, and this potentially could be a very, very long phase. It's already a very bloody and tragic phase, mm -hmm. unfortunately. Yeah, we can't develop the, what is it, the compassion fatigue, where right. we just see it over and over again and we become normalized to it, which I'm guilty of. We've got to continue to pray that the Lord would have mercy. That's right. 
Okay, our next story, this is just a quick one, and it's only because it is it deals with something noteworthy that is happening internationally, and that is the French presidential election. Uh, so uh, just a few days ago, they had their initial election, and they have a runoff system in France, and the top two candidates were the incumbent, uh, Emmanuel Macron, and uh, he is facing off against uh, the individual that he beat uh, several years ago, Marine Le Pen. Uh, And so they had their only presidential debate uh, this past week. And Axios is reporting this. In the sole debate ahead of Sunday's presidential runoff, French President Emmanuel Macron attacked his far-right rival, Marine Le Pen, for owing money to a Kremlin-linked bank and warned that her proposal to ban headscarves for Muslim women could create a civil war. Le Pen, who has attempted to rebrand herself and party after being crushed by Macron in 2017, hit the French president on crime and the rising cost of living and made the case that she better understands the struggles of voters. Macron's lead was up to 10% in the latest Politico poll of polls, wider than the 6% gap one week ago, but still far closer than the 66% to 34% result from 2017. So why am I bringing this up? Well, obviously, France is actually America's oldest ally. So we just continually need to be paying attention to, to what is going on over in Europe and there in particular. But also because, look, there are there are very legitimate uh, differences that a number of us would have with Emmanuel Macron's government. Uh, but it would be, it would represent a, a pretty drastic sea change uh, should Le Pen win. Le Pen, you know, the article said that that she is a, a far-right rival. The better way of describing her and the uh, the party that she represents is, is very much a populist in its orientation. So she's from the populist front, uh, which seeks to kind of create this far-right coalition of parties and and political theories and and kind of amass them under one tent to to get elected. And she does have more support this time around, according to these polls, than she did in in 2017. But it would represent a a pretty notable uh, change in uh, French leadership uh, should she prevail. And so that's why I think we should be uh, paying attention to it. And uh, we will see what happens uh, with the results on Sunday. Our final story comes to us from Baptist Press, and it deals with the candidates for SBC president. Tom Askell, Bart Barber, and Robin Hadaway will participate in a First Baptist Church panel discussion on Wednesday, May 4th. The discussion, which will be live stream, is set to be hosted by Joe Woodell and Tony Richmond, both of First Baptist Church Keller. Pastor Keith Sanders says the church is happy to host the event, knowing that, quote, these godly men will demonstrate how to converse, agree, and disagree in Christian love with civility. Sanders feels that Southern Baptists should be a light to the world first with the gospel, but also in how we relate to each other in public discussion. Askell, Barber, and Hadaway are currently the only announced candidates for the position. And I think should anyone else be nominated between now and then, they will also be able to uh, participate in this. The candidate forum is scheduled to take place at 12 noon central, and Woodell believes it would be good for SBC members and friends to hear the candidates' answers on how to encourage evangelism and missions, what they would prioritize, and how best to navigate denominational and cultural challenges in the coming months. While questions for the candidates will not be taken from the audience or live stream viewers, those interested in submitting questions before the event can do so at SBC 
2022 president questions at gmail.com. That is a long email address. Very long email address. So let me repeat it again in case any of our audience members would would like to to ask a question. SBC 2022 president questions at gmail.com. So is this something that normally happens? I do not remember. I seem to remember a few events uh, in the past where the candidates for SBC president appeared on the stage together, but I want to say that those actually happened at the convention, at the annual meeting. Yeah, I just wonder how, what effect social media has, much like TV and video had on the presidential debates in the, what, 80s or something? Um, I just wonder what kind of effect social media has had on things like this and and the SBC president election and, and the candidates needing to not face off, you know, but have a discussion and ask questions. Yeah. Yeah, it just is. It's interesting. I think it I think it would be very interesting to watch. So we should add that to our calendars. Uh 12 noon on May 4th, 12 noon central on May 4th. So Lindsay, I know that you are already typing your questions and adding it to the calendar. Let's just go ahead and invite the whole team. That's right. You order in some food and I'll be there. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Okay. All right. Well, Lindsay, that's your look at this week in culture. Well, thanks for that, Brent. And now it's time for the lunchroom, where we tell you what we're talking about with each other. So I pivoted on my lunchroom uh, because I forgot that I had just seen this delightful picture this morning that I was showing to Marion, and uh, it reminded me. Queen Elizabeth is going to celebrate her 96th birthday. It's incredible. In a milestone jubilee year, and it's on Thursday, so that's the day we're recording, but this will release tomorrow. Happy birthday, So happy birthday, Queen Elizabeth. 96, so there's a picture in the story, in a few of the stories of her as a two-year-old. She was never expected to reign, so it's remarkable that her reign has lasted so long. She's standing in between her two ponies. I did not know they were ponies. They looked like horses to me, full-size horses. But they're ponies. They're beautiful, white, and they have furry legs. Uh, but it's it's amazing, her reign and how long it has lasted. And um, she's been stepping back, I think, from from some things lately because of her deteriorating physical abilities. Like her, it's hard to, and yet she's trotting around with horses? You no, know, she's just standing in the middle of them. It's a picture for oh, her okay. birthday. Charles has stepped in for a few things. You imagine at 96, thing, it's kind of hard to get around. It's hard to get around it. I'm almost 39. So happy birthday, Queen Elizabeth. Well, Lindsay, the, the Queen's love affair with horses is, is very well known. And some folks, maybe folks who've read like Reagan biographies, they, they might remember the story I'm about to share. But given the occasion, I think it's a great time to bring it back up again. And so uh, this is the story. President Ronald Reagan shared Queen Elizabeth's love of horses. And during a state visit to the United Kingdom, the president accepted the Queen's invitation to go horseback riding together. As the two leaders rode along, the Queen's horse suddenly began expelling gas loudly in sync with each step. The queen was mortified and said, oh, I am so sorry, Mr. President. No problem, your majesty, deadpan Reagan. I thought it was the horse. That's hilarious. That's funny. Have you ever heard that? (laughs) No, I have not (laughs) ever heard that. That is hilarious. I read that a couple different times. Uh Uh-huh. President Reagan, uh, he probably was the wittiest president we have ever had. Really? And 
man, he had some one-liners like that where he just, gosh, that was so good. Yes, that's so good. amazing. You you cannot plan that kind of stuff. No, I you can't. No, you can't. All right, well, Lindsay, I'm bringing to the lunchroom this week a, a podcast from the Dispatch family of podcasts that I've just been kind of catching up on recently. It's been going for a little while now, so there's quite a few episodes, but it is the Good Faith Podcast, and it is hosted by friend of the podcast, David French, a friend of the ERLC podcast, David French, and also Curtis Chang. Uh, and the two of them have just a great rapport with each other, and they talk about a, just a number of issues where faith is inter, intersecting with politics and, and culture. And the reason I've been listening particularly intently over the, the last uh, week or so is because they've been talking about uh, democracy and where uh, different aspects uh, of the church are, are dealing with cultural issues. So they, they just went through uh, two episodes. They were talking kind of about fundamentalism and the draw of fundamentalism. Uh, it's just a really interesting podcast. And uh, David and, and Curtis are deep thinkers. And uh, for anyone in our audience who's a deep thinker, I would encourage them to take a listen. It's a, it's a good podcast. It's really helpful. I will have to check that out. I've been looking for a podcast to to add to my rotation of things when I get bored with the podcast that I'm listening to. I always like David French's takes on things, and um, I feel like he shares them in a way that is accessible. So it's not—he's a very smart individual, uh, but it's not over the top. So I do appreciate that recommendation. Well, the title of the podcast reminded me. This is what I was going to share originally in the lunchroom. Uh, but our friends at the Gospel Coalition are starting uh, something new called the Good Faith Debates— and uh, they're going to have some believers on there who have different opinions, and they're going to model what it looks like to keep the gospel central, as they say, and then disagree on lesser issues, but still important matters. And in a day and age where we do not ha know how to have good faith debates, I think this is very important to model, especially among Christians. We don't know how to have good faith debates, which is sad. So there's going to be charitable conversation, as they say amid substantive disagreements. So we've got some people on there, names we might recognize, like Rebecca McLaughlin, uh, Karen Swallow-Pryor, Justin Gibney, Andrew Walker, our former colleague. There are some interesting topics there. So I'd encourage you to check those out. There will be a link in our show notes. You know what? I think there is no better way to end this podcast than to say, happy birthday, Queen Elizabeth. I'm going to go enjoy some tea and crumpets in your honor. Just a reminder, you can find links to all the things we talked about today in the show notes. And if you like the podcast, please consider helping us spread the word by sharing the episode on social media or going into your favorite podcast app and leaving us a rating and review. The ERLC podcast is a production of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission and is hosted by Lindsay Nicolay and Brent Leatherwood. Technical production provided by Owens Productions. It's edited and mixed by Mark Owens. And in addition to listening to the ERLC podcast, be sure to check out our other ERLC podcasts. The Digital Public Square airs every Monday, and its host is Jason Thacker, who is one of the leading voices on technology and ethics. And if you like staying informed about important policy decisions that matter to Southern Baptists, Capital Conversations is our podcast directly from Capitol Hill, which is hosted by our colleague, Chelsea Sobolik. Search for The Digital Public Square and Capital Conversations wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks again for listening, and we'll be back next week with more content. Mm -hmm.